once you recognize and acknowledge that the female body is one unified whole, so reproduction has been viewed for no you know, good reason as a sort of tacked on feature of being a female. So, you know, well, like you can just get rid of reproduction, right? You can drug it out, you know, with hormonal contraception or some other form of contraception, and you could sort of get rid of reproduction and well, the rest of the body just continues on, but it's one body and it's completely interlinked. So you can't separate. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that Betty's, I think I've always wanted so to be a part of. And I am so excited to be able to bring you a so conversation, finally, after much ado, about bioidentical hormones and HRT. Now, this conversation was with my colleague, Dr. Felice Gersh. She is a medical doctor, board certified in OBGYN, obstetrics and gynecology and integrative medicine. And she is the director of the integrative medical group of Irvine, which is a comprehensive women's healthcare practice. She's been a faculty member at several prestigious universities and is currently at the University of Arizona. Dr. Gersh is the best-selling author of PCOS, SOS, and she regularly publishes in peer-reviewed medical journals. Now, Felicia and I spoke today, and I had specifically reached out to her after I w- uh, there was a huge debate in a community that we are a part of with several different uh, types of doctors, and we were talking about um, hormone replacement therapy, bioidenticals, and pretty much a fight started <laughs> on Facebook, and I reached out to her and I said, hey, you know what? I would love for you to come on uh, the podcast and really just do a deep dive into bioidenticals and HRT. And let's clear up some confusion, talk about this from a clinical perspective, what her experience has been like uh, treating both perimenopausal women with bioidenticals and menopausal women with uh, bioidenticals and HRT and what the differences are between them. So we start off our discussion talking about some of the different changes that we see in perimenopausal menopause in terms of symptomatic presentations. And she goes through the whole gamut from skin and hair all the way down to vaginal dryness and painful sex. And then we talk a lot about some of the mood and brain changes that we can see uh, in perimenopause. 
we talk about menopause, sexuality at, at, uh, in menopause and really trying to redefine it, uh, for women. And we talk about this idea of, you know, how can we, you know, menopause is a mirror, right? So what is it bringing up in us and how can we begin to heal the things that are still outstanding potentially in our lives? And then of course we get into the conversation of bioidentical hormones, something that you Bettys have been reaching out to me for months and months and months. And uh, Dr. Gersh and I actually had a conversation scheduled uh, late last year, but I had had to cancel it. And we, this was our makeup session. So I was really, really excited to have this. So we talked about the difference between bioidenticals and HRT. We talked about the difference between progesterone and progestin. We go through the whole thing and we talk about HRT. We talk about the women's health initiative, some of the uh, falsehoods and you know, really what a disservice this study, very expensive study did for women's health and women's medicine. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Felice Gersh. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Felice Gers, welcome to the Better Show. I am so thrilled to welcome you today. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here with you. Awesome. And you and I are having this conversation. We were just saying this in the pre-chat because I had posted in a community that we are both a part of around who is the resident expert on bioidenticals, on hormone replacement therapy, on perimenopause, on a menopause, and all roads led to you. I mean, there, this, this, this thread on Facebook, if you, uh, if my listeners could see it, it was like, it, it turned into a debate, which I was completely not expecting. <laughs> you were like bioidenticals yeah. for the win, hormone earth. And it was just this big thing. And I'm, I, I was so happy that you offered to come on the show and really take us through some of the science and through some of the pros and cons of, well, to explain perimenopause and menopause, but then also some of the pros and cons in terms of what our options are for whether it's bioidenticals or hormone replacement therapy, because as I was saying to you uh, before we started recording this, one of the biggest questions that I get as, um, you know, women um, in their menopausal years tend to feel like they're a little forgotten about, right? And they're like, what about, what, what are their options? Like, I just want to feel good in my skin. So, uh, so happy to have you here. And I think we're going to have a really great conversation around it. There is so much to cover. I'm so excited to have this conversation. And you're right. It is gravely neglected in many, many cases. 
Yeah. So why don't we start with just a couple of definitions, just to sort of level the playing field. I think that there's a lot of confusion, even around the term perimenopause, menopause. Uh, and I hear some people talk about postmenopause, which to mm. me is a little bit of an ox, like that doesn't really make sense. Like it's, it's your either, you either are in your menstruating years or you're not. Um, so let's start with some of the just generalized definitions. And then what are some of the uh, physiological changes that a woman in her, who's still in her reproductive years, but in perimenopause, it might experience? Well, the primary thing is that we really, I wish we could change the nomenclature and get rid of the word menopause because it really focuses only on meno, which is talking about the menstrual cycle and pause for stopping. So it's all about reproduction and it's all about having periods or lack of periods. When really what this whole process is, is ovarian senescence or ovarian aging. And it's not an all or nothing thing. So it's not like one day everything's working great and the next day, oh, poof, it's gone. It's it's a gradual process. It's the aging process, only specifically involving the ovaries. So every woman knows that her reproductive capabilities decline as she ages. So a woman is more fertile when she's 21 than 31 or 41, and then pretty much about gone by 51. So it's really paralleling the ovarian aging and the decline in the number of eggs that we have, and not just the number of eggs, but also their viability, their health and you know capability for becoming another human being. And so those words, you know, perimenopause, menopause, and like you said, like what the heck, postmenopause, um, it's really should be looking at the spectrum of ovarian aging. But if we have to work with the nomenclature that exists, the way I look at it is that perimenopause is about the decade, but it's variable, you know, because our ovaries are aging from the moment we're born. We know we lose eggs all the time and we have a decreased supply. You know, we are born with a finite number and the way things stand right now. And so the visible signs and the internal signs of aging of the ovaries not only reflect in reproductive capability, but in a whole host of metabolic functions. And they're expressed in terms of symptomatology, usually during the decade before the last period. By definition, menopause, which is an arbitrary definition, is defined as 12 months without any spontaneous bleeding. So once again, very arbitrary. And then so the way I look at menopause and postmenopause is menopause would be the first few years. I mean, this is made up too, you know, because, you know, like you said, either you are or not having periods, you know, that uh, is kind of a clear kind of a thing. But um, so I look at menopause as sort of the early menopausal years and postmenopause as the later menopausal years. At least that's how I am going to approach it because otherwise it makes no sense. But if we reframe it into what it really is, it's ovarian aging, then we can see it in the context of the whole female experience and what is really going on in our bodies. I love that. And I agree with you. One of the, one of the harder things around 
getting the diagnosis, if you will, or the label of menopause, you got to wait a year, right? It's sort of this retroactive, you know, so you might be six months in and you're like, I don't know, is it this time? Like I got to wait six more months, right? So I agree. It is relatively uh, arbitrary. And I think that that's a really useful reframe when we think about this in the context of ovarian aging and eventually senescence of the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ovaries are like, all right, we've, we've done our time. Like we're going to take the mm-hmm. Rolex and we're going to retire. So what are some of the metabolic changes? So you mentioned this just briefly, and maybe we Mm -hmm. can just open that up and expand that a little bit. What are some of the metabolic changes that you see clinically or that we know from a physiological perspective that are going to begin uh, in terms of being a Mm -hmm. clinical uh, symptom in in that decade or so before ovarian senescence? What are some of the metabolic features that you see? Well, there are a host of different things that are going on. And once you recognize and acknowledge that the female body is one unified whole. So reproduction has been viewed for no you know, good reason as a sort of tacked on feature of being a female. So, you know, well, like you can just get rid of reproduction, right? You can drug it out, you know, with hormonal contraception or some other form of contraception, and you could sort of get rid of reproduction. And well, the rest of the body just continues on, but it's one body and it's completely interlinked. So you can't separate reproductive health from metabolic health. So what is metabolic health anyway? It's really metabolism is about the creation, distribution, and use of energy in the body so that it works and so that you can actually support reproduction. So whether we as human females want to have a baby at any particular time or not, we need to accept that the prime directive of life is the creation of new life. I mean, after all, we humans are the only species that actually tries to control our reproductive destiny. I mean, you put a couple of cats together, what do you think happens, right? So it's just like teenagers, right? It would be like- (laughs) Only we, yes, you got it. That's like, come on, guys. So we know that we are the only species that actually makes a conscious effort to control our reproductive functions. But nature made it so that reproduction is the prime purpose of life. And all of the body functions are designed to support reproduction. So when reproduction ends, which really is what happens when the ovaries no longer have eggs and you don't ovulate anymore, you can't make a baby. It's the end of complete homeostasis for a metabolic functions. And that's really an important thing to recognize the unity of the female body. That's why ancient civilizations recognize this. They said fertility is a sign of health. They worship fertility gods. And now we've lost the understanding of what fertility means. It's really about health. So the nature wouldn't want an unhealthy body in a fertile woman. That's why, you know, to be actually having conception, going to a pregnancy, delivering, nursing, and then doing it multiple times, which is what we were originated to to do, that takes a lot of health, a lot of metabolic stamina. And it's really critical that for any metabolically healthy animal, you need to have this critically important balance between energy intake and energy expenditure, because that's really about metabolism. It's all about energy. So as you go through the whole process, one of the first things that people notice, women notice, is an alteration of their weight 
and of their appetite. And um, of course, there are many other things that go into play because estrogen, which I look at at, as the glue that actually kind of binds all of the functions of the female body together, the reproductive functions and the metabolic functions, which means every organ system in the body actually has receptors for estrogen. So estrogen has a role in the function of every organ. But in terms of what women often first see in terms of their metabolic health is that they kind of lose control of their appetite and they start doing like night binge eating and they see their body morphing. It's like they say, I'm not really changing a lot, even if they maybe they are, or they aren't. But they say my body is morphing like my cute little hourglass figure is changing and I'm getting this belly, you know, what's happening? I'm getting a muffin top. So it's often that women will see progressive weight gain, alteration in their body composition. If they actually check it, they have like more visceral fat, belly fat. And then along with that, they often will have, like I mentioned, the dysregulated appetite because it's very critical, as I mentioned, for every creature to be successful, to actually eat to control their metabolic needs, right? So you don't want to overeat and you don't want to undereat. And that's a finely tuned system that is very connected to estrogen. And when you don't have estrogen, you often will go to what I call the default system, which is always wanting to eat and eating at the wrong time. And estrogen controls a lot of where fat is deposited. That's why males have totally different fat deposition locations. You know, we're supposed to get that little butt little hips, but without the estrogen, it goes to the default, which is belly fat. And then we know estrogen is very key to sleep. So women, as they are going through this transition, often have tremendous problems with sleep, unrelated even to night sweats or high flashes, which is another thing that happens because in the brain, estrogen regulates not just the appetite systems, but also our temperature control regulation system. So the systems involved in maintaining proper temperature change. And then this is not something that women necessarily feel, but they often have vascular changes. So they're actually developing atherosclerosis and blood pressure rises and hypertension starts to develop during these years. And then as well, osteoporosis can start because as estrogen levels drop, there is a loss of bone. And another thing that is not always recognized is the gut. The gut has estrogen receptors. So there's a tremendous increase in acid reflux, GERD. Um, in the premenopausal years, males have far more GERD than women, but postmenopause and during the transition, women have much more, are, Stomach acid production drops, the, neuro, neuro, the neurological system of the gut called the enteric nervous system becomes more dysfunctional because there are estrogen receptors all over the neurological systems as well. So we have so basically I could go organ system through organ system. You know, there's more mood. In fact, women who have a prior history of emotional problems, whether it's postpartum, um, depression or anxiety disorders, their chance of having a worsening of those types of events goes up like 400% as her estrogen levels decline. Estrogen is actually an anxiolytic. It actually lowers anxiety. So it's just about everything. That's why I tell people 
it's my favorite hormone, estrogen. And, uh, you know, and we should love it and enjoy it while we've got it. I'll tell you, you know, you don't miss what you have until it's gone. Right. And um, estrogen has so many effects to the body. And then, of course, here's another one. How about wrinkles? You know, every woman notices sort of this really significant progressive aging in line with estrogen decline because estrogen also works to maintain the fat deposits in the face, you know, so you don't have to get fat from your butt, you know, transferred into your face and also collagen. So collagen stores and function is also, and also just even like the ceramide, the maintain the proper barrier function of the skin. So it doesn't get irritated and drier, you know, producing the proper amounts of sebum, the lipids and so on in the skin, all are related to estrogen levels. So there's this unfortunate thing called aging of the skin that happens as well. So when you put it all together, it's a real process that women face universally. It may alter, you know, we may be able to alter it a little bit by what we eat and our lifestyle, but it's coming, you know, whether it's this month or this year, you know, it's going to be universal. And it's, that's why I'm so excited to have the opportunity to really help women understand that it's so much more than just losing the ability to make babies. That's so great. And I'm, I want to ask you a kind of a controversial question, um, but I have a feeling that you'll be able to just deal with it with grace as you've already uh, answered uh, many of the questions that I had already prepared. So <laughs> is, is, it, is it reasonable? So when we think about estrogen and all of the roles that it has in the body, so we've talked about irritability, we've talked about sleeplessness, we've talked about anxiety, um, you know, headaches, that's another thing, uh, you know, oh. premenstrual headaches and like hot flashes as you mentioned and, you know, the, the cardiovascular changes, uh, we, we haven't gotten to, you know, libido yet. I know we will. Is there a reason to extend our exposure to estrogen? Meaning should we try to, whether it's through hormonal therapy or bioidenticals, uh, or, you know, maybe there's other means, but to, I mean, those are sort of the two main camps. Is there a reason to try and extend our menstrual years to be able to profit from the anabolic and the trophic effects that estrogen provides? Well, I totally think there is. So once you understand all of the different metabolic effects of estrogen, how it actually has a role in maintaining the health and function of every single organ system in the body without any exceptions, then yes, it's natural. And that's always been sort of like, you know, it's natural. So why would you mess with natural? Well, guess what? I'm a doctor. That's all I do is mess with natural. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's what I do. You know, well, I cancer want... is natural. I mean, like that's, that's sort of a, right. that's such you a know? ubiquitous term, like natural, like, you know, there's many things like aluminum, exactly. is, mercury is natural, you know, like we don't my, have my it. My goal you know? is as a doctor is to understand what it takes to help the body to function optimally, and then to try to keep it in that state at any age of life and through any circumstance, including like pregnancy, puberty, you know, middle-aged, older age, whatever it is. And when you think about it, when is a woman optimally healthy? We're not talking about during pregnancy. Um, it's really when she's like in her 20s, okay? So then you think, oh, what's the hormonal 
environment of the human body when a woman is in her 20s. Well, it's filled with estrogen naturally, you know, so that's really what I want to maintain. If you think about it, no cell in the body actually knows how old it is. If you give it what it needs in order to do its job, all of its metabolic functions, its intracellular issues that it needs to take care of, if you give it what it needs, no matter how old that cell is, it'll perform. But what happens with aging is it's an accumulation of deficiencies. Once you lose your foundational hormones like estrogen and, and progesterone, I think of as also, of course, very important and testosterone, you know, there's no unimportant hormone. But if I create sort of a hierarchy, I tend to put estrogen at the the top and then the others all work together. You need everything. You know, it's like a recipe. Which ingredient do you want to leave out? Well, some may be more important than others. You, you can't bake bread and just leave out the flour, but maybe you could leave out the salt or something like that. Not that I'm a baker, but, you know, <laughs> in terms of coming up with what could you possibly live without and still be, you know, it tastes pretty good or it, you're still really healthy. And unfortunately, estrogen is not really optional for optimal health, once you really understand what it's doing throughout the body. So what I would want to do is to give the cells what it needs. So hormones are really messengers, they're information delivery systems. And so if you don't have that information coming into the cell, it won't do what is optimal for the body as a whole, for the organ that it's in, and then for the whole body that it's residing in. So if we can try to maintain something of a physiologic environment with our hormones for our cells, then we'll have a better functioning body. When you lose your estrogen, that's like a number one deficiency, but then it creates other deficiencies because for example, thyroid hormone. So thyroid receptors require estrogen for optimal function. So if you have plenty of thyroid, but you don't have any estrogen, the thyroid will be less effective because the, the thyroid the receptors won't be as effectively working. The same thing for testosterone. If you give just testosterone and you don't have an environment with adequate estrogen, the testosterone will not work as well because receptors are up and down regulated by other hormones. The same thing with progesterone. There's this dynamic interplay of the hormones. So if you leave out the estrogen, other hormone systems won't work as well. And I mentioned the gut. Well, the gut is where you absorb all the nutrients that you need, the polyphenols, antioxidants, and of course, calories and all the, the macronutrients along with the micronutrients. So what happens after menopause, as your estrogen goes down, you get dysbiosis. You get wrong microbiome composition of your gut. And we know, oh my gosh, you cannot be healthy without an optimized microbiome everywhere. And of course, the gut is the biggest microbiome of the body with trillions of microbes living inside our gut. And they become abnormal in terms of their composition when you lose your estrogen. Then you're more likely to have impaired gut barrier or a leaky gut. And as well, you won't digest your food and absorb your nutrients. So then you get into the next level of deficiencies, nutrient, micronutrient deficiencies. And then the cells don't have all they need, even at a worse degree, to do the job that, that they need to do to keep you really healthy. And your immune system becomes altered when you don't have estrogen. And for example, in the brain, 
the immune system involves a specialized form of white cell, the macrophage. And in the brain, it's called the microglia. Without adequate estrogen, the, they're like weapons of mass destruction. They have the ability to make enzymes designed to dissolve damaged tissue so your body can get rid of it and repair the area or absorb and destroy invading pathogens, viruses, and bacteria. But without estrogen present, they become out of control and they can actually end up creating damage in the brain that can lead to neuroinflammation and problems with both cognition and emotion. In the bone, when you have these dysregulated macrophages, they're called specialized cells in the bone called osteoclasts. And that when they go crazy because they don't have enough estrogen, they start gobbling up the bone in an uncontrolled manner by secreting their enzymes and gobbling up bone to an excessive degree, and that creates osteoporosis. So there are so many reasons why I, as an individual, and for my patients, I want to prevent all these things. You need to be proactive. And but when you understand what goes on in an absence of estrogen, that you have basically a status of uncontrolled inflammation. In fact, some really smart person came up with this label, inflammation that mm -hmm. aging is involved with this chronic state of inflammation underlying and driving all of these you know, processes of, that we think of as aging. But so estrogen is about preventing that chronic state of inflammation by preventing leaky gut, by maintaining proper functionality of the immune cells so that they don't become weapons of mass destruction without control. So absolutely. You know, is it natural to go through menopause? Yes. But like you said, what the heck is natural? Every woman who gets cataracts isn't told, well, guess what? Your cataracts are natural. It's OK for you to be blind. Nobody would accept that. We we, 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 we replace joints like, well, here today, gone tomorrow. We'll just give you a new joint. So why can't we be proactive and prevent all that? Like in terms of joint replacement, women have far more joint replacements than men, much more incidence of osteoarthritis than males do. So why on earth are we not being proactive, recognizing that it's our loss of hormones from our ovaries that creates the environment of inflammation, deficiencies, and so forth that lead down the pathways to create all of these problems that then we have many doctors, specialists working to try to deal with it but not in the ways that are proactive, right? I would rather no one needed a joint replacement. No one needed to be in a mental care, you know, I should say a psychiatric care home or for Alzheimer's and so on, a memory, I should say, oh, let me do that over it. No one should have in a memory care home. Women have almost three times the incidence of Alzheimer's as males. And there is definite data that if you have estrogen on board, you have better production of neurotransmitters and neuroinflammation in the brain. So I think it would be quite intuitive to think that that's a plus, not a minus. Agreed. And I think, you know, we're talking about this in the context of hopefully the woman is also engaging in some of the, you know, natural lifestyle proxies like, you know, nutrition that is fit for her. She's moving, she's getting adequate movement and she's resistance training and she's managing her stress because we know particularly the population, you know, perimenopausal, menopausal women 
we have been child raising, if we've chosen that route for at least a decade or around a decade or more, one or two kids. Now we have aging parents. Like there's a lot of stuff that happens there. Um, but let's, um, let's talk, let's define bioidenticals and let's define hormone replacement therapy, because I think that I love what you're saying in that, you know, we would never say to a woman, Hey, you know, you have cataracts, but they're natural. So good on you. Like we'd (laughs) never say that. And I think that there's some circles that actually view the idea of hormone replacement therapy or bioidenticals, you know, just the bioidentical equivalents Mm -hmm. with some delivery system that the pharma company has Mm -hmm. patented, um, as anti-feminist, right. Or that it's Mm -hmm. a, uh, anti-woman for, you know, women to want to continue to benefit from all of the things that you just talked about with respect to estrogen, like the osteoblastic to osteoclastic ratio and the macrophages and the, all the, Mm -hmm. the immune system and the neutrophils and all that. So why don't, um, maybe define what a bioidentical is hormone replacement. And then let's talk about who might be, uh, where would we start on the continuum? Like, you know, we're going to assume for the purposes of this discussion that the woman is eating whole, as much whole foods as she can. (laughs) It's unprocessed. She's moving and she's still experiencing a lot of these changes as a result of her attenuating estrogen in her later, you know, forties or early fifties, what have you. So let's talk about what the, how we define or distinguish between Mm -hmm. those two and then how you might, you know, either as a, as a patient in your office or as a, as a consumer, someone who's listening to this podcast, how might they just say, well, you know what? I think that the HRT route would be for me based on, you know, a set number of, of, uh, risk factors or the BHRT would be, would be a path for me. Well, first I have to a hundred percent agree with you that hormones are necessary, but not sufficient for health. You can be a young woman who has perfectly healthy ovaries or young, but be very unhealthy. We know that there are women who are severely overweight. And of course, it's usually manifested when they're unhealthy by having irregular cycles because the menstrual cycle is now recognized finally as a vital sign of female health during the reproductive years. So absolutely, lifestyle is critical. So I look at it as like staying healthy is like a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. And the 400 centerpieces are the hormones, all the hormones, but there's a lot of pieces that are estrogen, but all the hormones. And then the surrounding 600 pieces are everything else, all the lifestyle things that you were mentioning. So in order to get the total picture so that you can get this jigsaw puzzle to really show what's what's going on in it, you need all the pieces, as many as you can. And as we age, we seem to like what I have jigsaw puzzles, like where'd that piece go? You know, it's under the couch, under the cushion, you know, wherever. And we seem to lose the, the pieces of our thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. So we need to do everything we can because health means keeping all the pieces in all the right places. And so to me, the hormone is a big, you know, hormone therapy is a big part of maintaining health as we age. But of course, everything is all important. That's the whole point of holistic approach to health, right? The whole person and all the different facets. In terms of what are bioidentical hormones? I just had a paper published recently in the British Medical Journal, Heart. And I have personally changed the wording because I put it in, instead of bioidentical, throughout my paper, I used the words 
human identical because I think that <clears throat> because I think that tells the story better. And unfortunately, because a lot of doctors in the conventional world think of bioidentical hormones as sort of this like wild west where you have compounding hormones um, being, you know, rather where you have compounding pharmacies creating these products of bioidentical hormones, which are uncontrolled and untested. And so automatically negative feelings come up when you use the words bioidentical. You know how there's just this thing about words, you know, that you just have to change the words because it defines our experience. Language is important. I know it's important. It is. I mean, certain words now, oh my gosh, you use those words and they mean very bad things, right? So a lot of doctors, and remember I'm an MD and I have to communicate to the other MDs out there and help them to understand what is important in terms of helping your patients, right? So I want to get rid of the phrase bioidentical, replace it with human identical, because that doesn't have those negative connotations, which evolved. So basically it tells the story. I want to give hormones that are identical to what the ovaries would make. We did this, for example, when insulin first came out, you know, they used to have to use insulin from like a rabbit and then they'd make antibodies. It didn't work as well. Now they can synthesize human identical insulin, which has transformed the life of a type one diabetic. So we now have these brilliant people who came up with the ability for us to synthesize human identical hormones. So it has exactly the same molecular structure as the hormones that our own body would make. And therefore, if you give the body something identical to what is naturally supposed to be in it, you'll get an optimal effect. Whenever you modify it, which is of course what big pharma does so they can get a patent on it. You cannot patent something that is natural because that's just not feasible. You didn't invent it. It's already on earth. It's already existing. It's natural. So they have to modify it. And that has created a great deal of problems because when they do studies with chemically modified products, you know, they're still hormones, but they're really endocrine disruptors, because what an endocrine disruptor is, it's a chemical that is either man-made or it could be natural, but most of them are man-made, that can act in various and often unpredictable ways to change how our natural hormones work. So they can affect the production of the hormone, the distribution, the degradation, the receptor function, basically anything. And so that's what has been made, these chemically modified hormones, which are really endocrine disruptors, and then they put them in a female and then they don't get the best effect. And then they, of course, in what do they do? They say, don't use real hormones, don't use human identical hormones. And that was sort of the foundation, unfortunately, upon which a lot of negative beliefs came out about hormones. But if you give human identical hormones, then the cell will get the message, the information, so that it will then perform correctly. And the other thing is that a lot of the data initially, when they even used human identical hormones, they used tiny doses because somehow this idea came out that you should be afraid of hormones. It's like you should be afraid of a lot of things but not your own natural hormones. Nature did not evolve so that our own natural hormones 
actually do us in when we hit a certain point in life. It doesn't work that way. If you give identical hormones and you give it in a physiologic level so that you're actually giving once again, like, well, when are women really optimally healthy? in their 20s. So you want to give hormone levels, not for a woman who's 70. Okay. Nobody's going to emulate, oh my gosh, I want to be as healthy as that 70 year old who's over there. You know, usually it's like, I want to be like, you know, that beautiful 21 year old over there. So that's what I would want to do for my patients. And the time to do it is actually during the time that you're transitioning to think about it, because once again, the arbitrariness of saying menopause is 12 months without a menstrual cycle is completely disregarding the science, which is it's a gradual process of ovarian aging. So every woman has to be looked at as a unique individual. Okay, what are her symptoms? How is she feeling? And then we have, oh, we have tests. We can actually measure, like, how is your cholesterol doing? What's, what's the status of your inflammatory markers? What What's going on with your immune system? Are you developing autoimmune disease, which, by the way, increases more with the onset of menopause or when you introduce endocrine disruptors, which is why there's such a prevalence of autoimmune disease in younger women. But without estrogen, women are much more prone to develop like rheumatoid arthritis. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. So there's so many things we can measure You cannot monitor if you never measure. But now we have these abilities to look at the lining of the arteries. You know, what's your carotid intima looking like? Is it already becoming thickened or inflamed so that we can actually know the status of someone's internal health as well as the symptoms they're experiencing so that we can really pinpoint what's really the optimal time to add some hormones for this woman's body so that she can feel better and be healthier, recognizing that it's not like a moment in time, it's a process that takes time for it to develop. And so it really isn't like I can say, there's an absolute like cookie cutter protocol that everyone goes through. And like you mentioned migraines, that is such a big problem. And the reason is what usually triggers migraines is when you have a sudden change in estrogen level. So what happens, like, for example, women who have premenstrual migraines is right at the time the period is going to start, you have this big drop in estrogen, and that's often a trigger of a migraine. Well, for women going through the perimenopause, it's quite a roller coaster. So their estrogen looks like a stock market, you know, in a very, very bad year. You know, it's <laughs> yes, going, it it's going down. <laughs> yeah. It's the steady trend is down, but in between going down, you have these spikes up. So it's right. down, spike up. And so you have so much fluctuation in your estrogen levels and migraines in people who are 
prone to them can go absolutely out of control. And sometimes what you can do is give them a background level of just a small amount of estrogen, because what triggers these giant ups and downs is that the brain perceives there's not enough estrogen. So it puts out the signal to the pituitary, which in turn puts out the gonadotropins, LH and FSH, which is what triggers the ovary to make estrogen. In the early process of ovarian senescence, the ovaries still can make hormones. They just don't make it as well. But if you actively hyperstimulate them and you give them a higher than what would be typical amount of these gonadotropins, FSH and, and LH, you'll get these suddenly like the ovaries like wake up. It's like, OK, and they they just start making all of these hormones in a much higher amount. That's really the most common time of a woman's life when she can actually have estrogen dominance, because suddenly she's like making super high levels of estrogen. It's kind of like the flame out of a fireworks show before it all goes dark. You know, that last time when, whoa, the whole sky lights up with the fireworks and then total blackness. Well, this is sort of the approach to menopause. You get these giant spikes of, of estrogen and then, of course, dips. But if you keep a little supplemental estrogen, then the brain doesn't go so hyper and say, oh, my gosh, I need more estrogen. And then push the pituitary to make all that gonadotropin. So you don't you, you're still going to go down. OK, there's no there's no out of that. OK, naturally, you're going to go down, but you don't have to get along the way that can trigger these horrific mood swings and migraines and sleep problems and so on because of the roller coaster of estrogen levels that keep going up and down. So these are like really important things that are not well recognized. And what typically happens is kinds of pharmaceuticals that are addressing the underlying issue, which is the roller coaster of estrogen as the ovaries go through this senescence process of this flame out of Hormones. By the way, that actually is why women during the perimenopausal years have the highest of twins, fraternal twins, because they still have the capability, last ditch effort, you know, to make hormones and still ovulate. They're not completely over yet. They still have some functionality. And when you get this hyper stimulation of FSH, that's what we use like to help women to get pregnant if they're not able to. That's what they do for women who are going to go through IVF. They give them these hormones, help them to ovulate. And that's why they try not to more optimums, right? So you don't hyper stimulate them. Well, nature can do that. And so are not uncommon in women who get pregnant in their early 40s because they have this hyper stim. So there's all kinds of ramifications, twins, migraines. It's nice and a lot of breast tenderness. Oh my, when you get that really estrogen speak, uh, when you get that really giant estrogen spike, you can have tremendous breast tenderness as well. So all of this can be controlled by giving physiologic levels or in the early stages, just even a little bit, just to try to keep the brain from overstimulating the ovaries and then later giving physiologic levels so that you can maintain all of the bodily functions from the brain, through the gut, through the cardiovascular system, the musculoskeletal system, and all of these systems. So I look for human identical, not some endocrine disruptor that's made by a pharmaceutical company, and then trying to go through you know, the process of figuring out what amount you give each woman to get that physiologic level. And that's really important. It's definitely not a one size fits all.
Nature didn't intend for women to have hormones delivered through their skin, for example, after menopause. Nature just provides for our optimal health during our reproductive years. And then after that, we're just lucky we're still here. Most creatures on earth die when reproduction ends. So we're lucky we still get to be here. And a lot of people put that out as the grandmother hypothesis, right? That nature helps select women that would do well in the menopause so that they can help their daughters raise their children. But for a while, you know, like maybe for a decade and then goodbye, you know, enough. Next, next, please. You know, so we have that going for us that we're still here. But, you know, we're definitely going into that decline. And some of us, we don't care. You know, like if you figure any woman who dyes her hair to get rid of gray roots, who puts on makeup, who does Botox or filler or puts on Spanx, you know, whatever we do to try to enhance our appearance, you know, or do anything to try to counter the process of aging in some way. So to me, this is just part and part parcel of that kind of a thinking that nature makes us age, but we don't like it. And so it's not anti-feminine to want to be on hormones. It's pro-feminine. It's recognizing what nature provided and then we take the power to actually create our own destiny by not withering, by not drying up. If you think of the vagina as sort of the, the canary in the coal mine. So virtually 100% of women will develop what we always used to call vaginal atrophy. Now they call it genital urinary syndrome of the menopause because, you know, words matter and they keep liking to change words, you know, sounds fancier. But we used to call it what it was, vaginal atrophy dried up vaginas. And no one likes that. And it's associated with a lot of bladder related issues as well. And it happens to close to 100% of women. So they say, okay, give her some vaginal estrogen. Why would I only want to help one organ? I want everything. That's symbolic of what's happening throughout the body. I mean, it's, a, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a visual, but you know, everything's drying up. Everything's atrophying. So who wants that? If you give systemic hormones throughout the body, then every organ can benefit, not just the vagina. Come on, guys. It's not just one organ that's affected by estrogen deficiency. It's every organ. So if you have a vagina that's drying up, so are your arteries. So is your brain. So are your bones. Everything is symbolically drying up. So why not? We have the smarts. We have the technology. So what's wrong? with trying to be healthier. It's a lot cheaper in the long run because, you know, then you don't have, you know, to go and have stents and you don't have, you know, fractures and you don't have joint replacements and all that other stuff that happens when you lose your hormones. So to me, it's being proactive, it's being smart. And there are very few women who don't qualify, predominantly women who have estrogen positive, receptor positive, cancers like uterine cancer or breast cancer. So that would be quite controversial. And I would never advocate that women should be getting estrogen. Now, it's very important for people to know that estrogen is not the cause of those cancers. But if you have a cancer that has the capability of responding to estrogen, and then you put estrogen into the environment, the estrogen was not programmed in our body to understand cancer. 
because cancer is sort of a modern disease. It was there were plenty of problems our ancestors 20,000 years ago had to deal with, but cancer really just wasn't high on the list. And so what happens is estrogen is designed for nurturing. It has it stimulates growth factors, blood vessel formation, tissue repair, and it kind of views cancer as, well, it's damaged tissue. I'll nurture it. I'll help fix it. But it's cancer. So estrogen is sort of being um, misdirected into helping to support a cancer, but it didn't cause it. In fact, my own belief, I haven't had it proved yet, that if you give women natural human identical physiologic dosing of hormones from the time they're transitioning into menopause and thereafter, their incidence of these cancers will actually be significantly lower because all of these cancers like uterine cancer, breast cancer are much more common in the postmenopausal years than in the premenopausal years, because once again, postmenopause women develop that state of low-grade inflammation. And now we recognize cancer as a metabolic disease, that cancer is related to lack of metabolic health and a state of inflammation, which is an environment for DNA breakage. And then you know, damage to the DNA can lead to the formation of cancer. So if you can prevent that state of systemic inflammation, then you will help to prevent the DNA from being altered in a negative way, and then the cancer developing. And like I was saying about endocrine disruptors, one of the reasons why we have more cancers like breast cancers in younger women isn't because they have hormones. It's because of endocrine disruptors, what they call xenoestrogens, these chemicals that get into the body and muck around with the way natural hormones are working so that it increases the breast cancer risk. We need to recognize, and this is another story for another day, that birth control pills, unfortunately, actually are endocrine disruptors. If you go to the, um, the site for toxicology, um, .gov, you'll see that all the ingredients in birth control pills are indeed officially listed as endocrine disruptors. So that doesn't mean no one should ever take birth control pills, but I'm about informed consent. People need to know the short and long-term ramifications of what they put into their body, because that's what being a true, honest doctor and being pro-feminist is about. Is It's about education and giving choice based on real knowledge. So we definitely have an issue with increasing breast cancer in younger women, but it's not because they have hormones. It's because their hormones are being disrupted. Right. And I think, I think some of the fear around hormone replacement therapy and human identity, we'll use your term, human identical uh, hormones really does come from uh, the uh, women's health initiative, right? Where they have you know, 2002, I believe was the first publication and they halted the study early and we'll put a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to read it. But they basically said that the combination of estrogen and progesterone cause increases the risk of breast cancer. So just what you were talking about Mm -hmm. with those estrogen positive receptors, increases the risks of heart attack, increases the risk of cognitive decline, increases the risk of colon cancer. And, you know, so all of these things. And then I think there was just mass hysteria, really, to use that, mm-hmm. you know, to use that word, there was this mass pandemonium around, oh my goodness, HRT is going to give you a heart attack. It's going to 
And of course they later revised, you know, they later published, Mm -hmm. um, you know, follow-up articles that said, well, no, this is not actually true. And if you actually just look, I mean, I don't know if you have any comments on the, on the women's health initiative, but if you actually just look at the, the population that they studied, it was, I don't really think very representative of, you know, a six in like the median age was 63, 70% of them were overweight. I'm, I'm just reading mm-hmm. some notes that I had in, yes. just in, in our prep for this conversation. 34% were obese, 40% were smokers. Many of them already had high blood pressure. So these are already comorbidities. These are already things that are going to predispose someone to having a cardiovascular event. If you're obese, you're a smoker, you have high blood pressure, you know, you're overweight, and then you introduce another stressor. And by the way, they also just gave everybody the same thing. Like you had mentioned sort of just a little drop in the bucket, but it's worth highlighting. Like every single woman is individual and therefore Mm -hmm. they need an individualized plan. Well, with the WHI, it was just everyone's going to get the same thing. And it was Premarin, uh, which is, you know, uh, pregnant mare's urine, uh, you know, which is, is, which is progestin, right? So this is a synthetic hormone. So, um, I don't know if you have any comments on the WHI. That's probably another podcast in and of itself, but, um, what are your thoughts on, what are your thoughts on human identical hormones and contrasting that with things like progestin where we know that they have, I mean, one of the things I like to focus on is brain health. That's sort of where I like to geek Mm -hmm. out on. And particularly with progestin, we know that it can decrease cortical thickness and the cortical mass over time. It can also uh, predispose, you know, we talk about this with in, in respect to the hormonal contraceptive, it can make the woman, um, engage in more risky type behaviors and, um, some, some of those, um, different, her cognition changes, like her risk aversiveness seems to attenuate. So do you have any, um, comments about hormone replacement therapy as a viable option as well as, or in Mm -hmm. not as what, not in conjunction with, but would it be an, uh, if you had to choose between human identical hormones or uh, synthetics, would there be a clear choice for you for most women? Or is it really um, on a case by case basis? Well, you only want to put into the body what it's designed to take naturally in the body, which would be what's already there. So for example, if you ask me this question, which a lot of people are the question you asked is very, very important because that's being asked all the time. But if you asked um, a nutritionist, do you think people should eat processed food that is devoid of nutrients and full of chemicals or eat organic fresh produce? <laughs> it would be like, hmm, that's a real hard one to think through. I think, <laughs> you know, so that's exactly how I think of this. Like, do I want what is actually a chemical endocrine disruptor, something that would never be found in the human body, or do I want the hormones that are actually designed to be in the human body? So a hundred percent, every woman should have human identical. Now the women's health initiative, which is like about 20 years ago when it came out has created so much harm. And there've actually been articles published estimating how many women died because that article came out and it's really horrific. Of course, it's like a you know statistical analysis and so on, but it was really horrific to see when they actually tried to compute it, um, what happened because so many women stopped taking hormones. But what was used in the, uh, the Women's Health Initiative was half the problem. And the other half was the fact that they used 
you know, an unhealthy population. My own belief, but I haven't been able to prove it because this study has never been done, that if they took that identical group of women, even though they were old and they had a lot of pre-existing conditions and so forth, but they gave them human identical hormones, we would have had a different outcome. But we took like the wrong population already at risk, and then we gave them a toxic substance. And then lo and behold, there were some bad outcomes. But surprisingly, the outcomes weren't anywhere near as bad as you might think, given what they were actually prescribing. So when you take any oral estrogen, any oral estrogen, even estradiol, which is the same estrogen that the ovaries make, it actually is altered through the digestive system and going through the liver from one form into another. So you never want to take oral estrogen. That's really important, even in the form of estradiol, because by the time it gets into the bloodstream, it's modified into being predominantly estrone. So the estrogen made by the ovaries is called estradiol. The real name is 17-beta-estradiol. And that is what we give when we give topical or transdermal estrogen that can be absorbed through the skin. But if you take that same product, but you take it orally, it gets modified into estrone. So estrone is a different estrogen that has primarily effect on only one type of estrogen receptor. And there are three types of estrogen receptors. And they work in this beautiful, very complex method of maintaining health in the body where they up and down regulate each other and they have different concentrations of different receptors and different organs. And when you give estradiol, it's balanced between all of the receptors but it has to go through the skin when you give. So that it bypasses oral, the liver, goes directly exactly. into the stream. Yeah. And when you give an oral product, whether it's Premarin, which is really about the worst, but if you even give the oral estradiol, it ends up as estrone, which predominantly works on the receptor for the alpha receptor. And that's like gets complex, but you're going to have an imbalance and that's not good. So, you don't want to take any oral estrogen. And when you take Premarin, that's actually conjugated, it means it already has been through the horse's liver to be removed from the, the horse's body. The horse doesn't want it anymore. The horse has already processed it through the liver, conjugated it to get rid of it. And then they're urinating it out. And it's not even just this conjugated estrogen product. It's like a host of other things are coming along for the ride. And then they just dry the, like the product and turn it into a tablet. So no one has even fully analyzed what's in it. That's why it never became truly generic because you can't replicate it. It's like this hodgepodge of stuff coming out in the horse's urine, the pregnant horse's urine. So it's a host of different products. But we know that when it goes through the, the liver and the digestive system of the woman, it comes out as a host of different things and products that would never be in a human body. I mean, because a horse is definitely not a human. And so the products are quite different. And there's a lot of this estrone. So it has very different effects. So it would be like doing a study with strawberry flavored jelly beans. And then you find, hey, you know, it increases cavities and obesity and diabetes. But the conclusion isn't don't eat strawberry flavored jelly beans. It's never eat organic strawberries. And that's what they did. They had this crazy conclusion that they applied to human identical hormones when they were using strawberry flavored jelly beans. They were using the, the estrogen that came out and all this other stuff from a pregnant horse's urine that was already conjugated altered. And then they added the progestin, medroxyprogesterone acetate. So it, they kept talking about it like it was progesterone, 
but it's not progesterone. It's an endocrine disruptor for progesterone. So it has a different effect in the breast and in the brain and in the cardiovascular system. And we now know that it does, in fact, do all these bad things in the brain and in the cardiovascular system and in the breast. So my goodness, why did we give something that technically is a poison? Um, it because maybe they didn't know when they were making up this study that it had all those bad effects. But we know it now. And we've known it for a long time. So why does this myth get perpetuated about progesterone being bad when it's this endocrine disruptor that is actually bad? So the conclusions apply to what was tested. And what the odd, the oddest thing is that even in the study itself, it actually said these conclusions should only be applied to what we actually tested. But we know that didn't happen. They made like grand, you know, vindictive statements about everything related to every type of hormone, including human identical. So fast forward 20 years. Come on, guys. It's time to change the whole paradigm of hormones do in a female and what hormone therapy can do for a woman. So when you give the rights stuff, you get the right effect. So you would never, you know, once again, give strawberry flavored jelly beans, say organic strawberries are evil. So let's stop doing that with hormones. Once and for all, let's close the book on the Women's Health Initiative. They use the wrong population. They use the wrong hormones. And, and let's apply the conclusions as was supposed to be done to actually what was tested and the population tested. So let's just bury that forever and never look back. That's like, like, like a dark, the dark days for women's health. And now let's go it's back unfortunate into the light. Too, such an expensive study. And I don't oh. think that you'll ever see anything like that or have that opportunity to study that many women and to have that kind of budget again, which is yeah. really unfortunate. Yeah. There were some offshoots of that study, which had some validity. They had a whole bunch of looking at diet and looking at coronary calcium scores. So there were a few things that came out that were actually applicable to nowadays, you know, but yeah. the, the big bulk of the data, really, it's that that chapter should be done over done. Let's it's junk. That's yeah. right. It's junk. I mean, I think I would live very happily with the conclusion. Don't prescribe Prempro. Okay, I accept it. Yeah. What's interesting is that even the Premarin alone group, they didn't give any progestin to the women who had a hysterectomy. Another story. I always give progesterone to women who don't have a uterus because progesterone, progesterone. progesterone. real progesterone, yes. real okay. progesterone, human mm. identical, because there are just like estrogen has functions all over the body. So too does progesterone. Like, like you were inferring progesterone is neuroprotective, real progesterone, not this phony baloney endocrine disruptor stuff. So real progesterone has real benefit throughout the body. So of course, I don't care if a woman does or doesn't have a uterus. I want to replace that as well. And they work together like the yin yang, you know, estrogen, progesterone, they kind of there's a synergy between them. So, of course, I want to replicate something of the rhythm of a menstrual cycle because that is what women's bodies were designed for. So we don't want to just give estrogen alone. We want to give its best friend with it, the progesterone. But when they did the study in the Women's Health Initiative, they, of course, didn't understand any of that. And they didn't give the progestin, the medroxyprogesterone acetate to the women who didn't have a uterus, which was good for them. It turned out because that was a bad product. And the women in that group actually had a lower incidence of breast cancer 
compared to placebo. So what it showed is that, oh my goodness, actually the estrogen was beneficial. So we definitely need more data about you know, breast cancer and giving hormones. Because remember, as I said, I am totally a believer, but I have no data to support my belief. I have science, but I don't have human data that if you give women human identical hormones in a rhythmic fashion to somewhat replicate a menstrual cycle, so you will have bleeding. Okay, girls, that's okay. That shows that you're a female and that your hormones are balanced. And so we don't want to recreate a new environment never that would never be seen in a human female. We want to replicate we want to replicate what actually keeps women the healthiest, which is a physiologic rhythm as well as physiologic levels of human identical hormones. And when you do that, I believe I just want to prove it that you will lower the incidence of these age related cancers that are hormonally related as well, like uterine and breast. But we need data and we need interest. We need the scientists to actually apply for grants for these kinds of studies. And we need to have a sort of an interest in terms of the population of women so that they can see like the NIH sees that, yes, there's a demand for this. So we will fund it, you know? So once again, if you have the money, they will come. Right. And yeah. so we need to give incentive to the researchers so that they will start doing more research to benefit women that it will be coming of age into the menopause and there's plenty more in the pipeline. So we want to help them. I feel so sad for women who sort of missed the optimal time to start hormones because it's much easier, as we all know, in, in medicine to prevent than to repair. So that's why you want to start hormones early so that you can maintain the health of being younger, not try to restore it. Like we know once you have severe osteoporosis, giving hormones isn't going to make the bones like you were 20. It's not going to happen or 30. Actually, we peak our bone mass in our early 30s. So that's um, not going to happen once you already have bone that's severely disintegrated with osteoporosis or joints that have been severely damaged. You can't like just give hormones at that stage and then suddenly they're going to be great again. Um, you're not going to reverse severe end stage Alzheimer's you know, atherosclerosis, we have to be proactive. So we have to think of maintaining health rather than waiting for years or decades and then trying to figure out how to restore it. It's just not going to be the same. So that's why at least for women coming, approaching the menopause, let's educate them. So, and their doctors, so that this un, unnatural fear and irrational fear of hormones can be just done away with forever. I love that. And so you, we've been talking a lot about estrogen, uh, human identical estrogen, uh, and we started touching a little bit on progesterone and what I have found at least just anecdotally. So as you were saying, like no RCTs, no double blind, you know, Mendelian randomization, but 
for a lot of women who are starting to notice that their anxiety, uh, you know, irritability, mm-hmm. even, even sleep, like even sleep mm-hmm. issues, yeah. sometimes just a little, uh, you know, this is just conversations I've had with other physicians. I've, um, you know, and patients will uh, report that, you know, a quarter, you know, a teaspoon to a half teaspoon of like progesterone cream, you know, somewhere between 30 and, you know, maybe 60, you know, milligrams or so can, especially in those earlier stages of perimenopause can really help to ameliorate and to improve some of those symptoms. So I guess my, my question here, um, in all this is, do you, do you like to start with progesterone, human identical progesterone, or do you like to start with the estrogen as a, like there's a baseline level of estrogen and then you may, you know, layer on some progesterone with it. If you're, if you're noticing that, you know, her ability, like her depression and some of the mood and cognitive changes that she's having, you may put in some progesterone to, to help counter, to help counter that. Well, like you were alluding to, it is highly individualized. But one of the things that I love to do is do what's called menstrual mapping. So this this would be for women who are still having cycles. Often the cycles of perimenopausal women are changed. They become shorter. That's the most common. Then ultimately they'll become further spaced apart. But often they'll go from like 28, 30 days down to 26, down to 25. And what's happening is typically the luteal phase is shortened. That's the phase when they make progesterone. But I can now get a test that's... um, a menstrual mapping test using urine, and I can actually map out for the whole cycle, the estrogen levels and the progesterone. So it's not just getting a random level on day 21 or something like that. I can actually see, and then I can actually know what's happening, certainly for that cycle. So I have had patients where they're still having regular cycles, their cycles are shorter, and when I look at it, there it also measures LH, luteinizing hormone. There, Are you talking LH, about the Dutch test? Are you talking about Dutch? Well, this is the one that I tend to use is from ZRT laboratories. I'm oh. sure they're very similar, right? Yeah. So it's basically mapping out. There are a few companies that do this where they map out the whole cycle. And the LH is, it's LH, progesterone, estrogen. And the LH spike, which should normally be like a big spike. And also you should have a big estrogen spike and then you get a big LH spike and then the progesterone goes up like a big. So what I see, it's like, everything is like minute. It's like diminished. It's like, so you get this little low level of estrogen, then you get this little bitty spike and then you have this little bitty LH spike and then the progesterone rises just a little bit and then they get a cycle. And it's like, oh my gosh, no wonder they feel so horrible. They have really low production of everything. So I'm going to put them on everything, but sometimes I'll see the estrogen is okay, but the progesterone is the cycle, the partial part of the cycle that the progesterone comes into play, which is the luteal phase. It's really short. You know, it should be like two weeks. And instead it's like nine days, 10 days, maybe. And it never really gets up there. So then I will want to just, I may just want to supplement with the progesterone. So now I love to, know what I'm doing if I can, but sometimes you can't. So if I have to do it empirically, then I just go by the symptomatology. Like, is it primarily anxiety? Is it sleep? Are they actually having signs of maybe too much estrogen? And then you think, well, never give them estrogen. They have too much. Well, actually, if you give them estrogen, their brain won't put out so much of the gonadotropins and they won't actually make so much estrogen. And you actually can reduce some of that estrogen dominance. And then maybe their progesterone level will come back more, you know, aligned with what they, it should be because they're not having such crazy craziness all over the place with their estrogen. So 
it, if I can, I like to measure. If not, I just want to hear the story. And then we it's a little bit of a trial. I don't want to say error because and also recognizing it's that you're this is the art part. It's the art. art and science. And right? yeah. I always say to every woman, you know, during the perimenopause, I am sorry, but you are a moving target because you could be one way one month and a different way the next. In fact, going back years ago, I would test an FSH and we were originally taught in OBGYN training that if you have a high FSH, it means they're in menopause. So I would proudly announce, guess what? You're in menopause. You haven't had a period for three months. Okay. But, you know, officially you really, I mean, it's not the official definition, but you're clearly there. Your FSH is sky high. You haven't had a period in three months. And then they'll come back another two months later and they're pregnant. It's like, what? Okay. So guess what? You know, they actually, that giant FSH actually caused them to get out their last egg or two, you know, and then suddenly they actually got pregnant because they had that big spike of FSH. It stimulated their ovary to like, woof, just like in the last, <laughs> the last breath, <laughs> the ovary let out its eggs. So, you know, I never do that anymore. I can tell you because you can't predict, you know, so a woman could go without a period for three months in the perimenopause, and then she could actually get pregnant, you know, because you just don't know what she's going to do. What's what's left in that ovary could be just enough to get her pregnant or, you know, have a couple more menstrual cycles, assuming she doesn't become pregnant. So, you know, you can't always predict. These are very interesting times and women are moving targets. So we have to adjust, you know, you have to like be quick and, and light on your feet, you know, to respond to what's happening to your patients during this time. I love that. My goodness, this has been such a wealth of information and such an overdue conversation. I know that the, my fans of the podcast, we call them our Bettys. Our Bettys oh. are going to just love this, um, love this conversation. And if someone wants to, um, if someone wants to reach out to find out more about you, about your practice, Tell people where they can find you and, you know, the, you know, where you're located on social and how people can interact with you more. Well, first, I just want to say I'm in the process of writing a book on menopause and it would probably will come out in October. So you have to wait a little bit, but it will be um, published in October. You know how these books always take longer than yes. what you think yes. you know, that it should be completed, but then it has to sit with the publisher for whatever they do. So that will be coming. In the meantime, I'm like right now I'm talking you, to you from my office. This is actually an exam room because I don't have a studio and um, you know, we all make do these days. And um, so I see patients all the time, brick and mortar practice here in Irvine, California, Southern California. I also can do telemedicine as well for people who can't come all the way out to see me. And I have an Instagram where I do a little show every week at some point. It's not totally scheduled because I just have to work around my schedule, but my, um, handle. I don't know if you put that up. It's DR period Felice Gersh. And I love to give out information to anyone who wants to hear me go over whatever I'm thinking about. And hopefully it will always be accurate. And I will always be here as long as I can to serve every woman's needs, you know, at every age of life, because that's why I could never totally niche because I just love it all. I love helping women at every stage through all their issues, whether it's 
you know, going through puberty and getting their periods established, infertility related things, you know, the the midlife 30s and then the whole perimenopause, menopause. There's always something interesting going on in a woman's life. I can tell you that. Yes. We're just extra. We're just never a dull moment. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I think that what you're doing is so important because, you know, as we, you know, we touched a little bit on research and research tends to be me search, right? It tends to be like we, we research the things that we're interested in and who are the people that typically research, it tends to be men. So there's a lot of male-based protocols. There's a lot of male-based mm-hmm. research. And what we really do need is more, uh, more female focused, uh, information that will replace some of the, you know, the failures of yesteryear with, you know, the women's health initiative, um, et cetera. So I think what you're doing is so important. And this is where the data originally comes from. It comes from the clinician, right? When you look at evidence-based, you know, this, we see this term thrown around a lot, but it's really the intersection of, you know, A, what the patient wants, the, you know, B, what the literature says. And when the literature is lacking, of course, you need to rely on the clinical experience of the practitioner, which is what you have in spades. So I really just, you know, want to tip my hat off to you and thank you for your work. And I know this is going to be so, so well received by, by my community. This is really long overdue, this conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for giving me the ability to help women to understand what they're facing as they go through menopause and what they can do about it. Thank you. I hope that you found this conversation incredibly useful. I hope that it scratched the bio-identical itch that you may or may not have been contemplating. And I hope that in this conversation, we really were, my hope is that we were able to dismantle some of the shame that can come with bio-identical use. I think that there's a lot of practitioners who will advocate for natural methods, which I think is important. You need to always have mastery in some of the foundational basics. But when that has failed to ameliorate all of your symptoms, I mean, it's going to ameliorate most of them. But if you still have some lagging behind, my hope is that from this conversation, you'll be able to make an informed choice around whether uh, identical, bioidentical hormones, HRT is appropriate for you. And I just wanted to take a moment to remind you to click on the show notes, grab some of those links from some of our sponsors. You may have noticed in recent episodes, I have accepted two uh, sponsors for the podcast. Now I've been doing this podcast now for, uh, it's coming up on two years in the fall. So we'll call it a year and a half at this point. And I've said no to a lot of people uh, who have wanted to collaborate with me and to, you know, throw money to the podcast, what, what have you. And the two that I am really willing to put my foot down and say, these are the products that I absolutely love because I'm using them myself are Athletic Greens as well as Orion Red Light Therapy. So you can head over to the show notes. You'll find the Athletic Greens uh, website there. You can go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Stephanie. And they are offering a free year, like it's crazy, a free year of vitamin D uh, supplementation 
it for in addition to um, some travel sachets for uh, bonusing you for your first purchase. So you can head over to athleticgreens.com forward slash Stephanie, or you can head over to, if you want to learn a little bit more about red light therapy, you can head over to orionrlt.ca. That's orionredlighttherapy.ca. And you can enter Stephanie10 for 10% off of any of your purchases at checkout. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. 